We bring this question before you today on Grow in Grace. I suspect, as usual, there's two groups of people here, two different groups of believers, those who all the story is familiar to you, believe every word of it, and then some of you, like Pilate, who aren't sure. All the way through this trial, he's trying to figure out, who is this man? What am I going to do with Jesus? And to those of you that may still be struggling with that, let me just speak for a moment because I actually like to speak to people who are struggling with that because that was my struggle for several years. I didn't become a Christian until I was 26. I was a scientist. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing Son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. We're glad you could make it today as we get ready to return to John 19 on Growing Grace. Now, if you'll recall, it's the morning of the crucifixion. Jesus is before Pilate, and the heat is on the Roman governor. The Jewish leaders and the people are pushing to have Jesus put to death. They had formed a political charge, but Pilate quickly realizes he's really innocent of all the charges and looks for a way out. The pressure increases. Pilate gives in and has Jesus delivered over to be crucified. Let's join Pastor Ed Ray for more of the events leading to the crucifixion of Jesus, picking up in verse 11 of John 19. Verse 11, Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. The only power you have is what Father God has allowing you to do. But those who delivered, those who captured me in the Gethsemane and brought me here, their sin is even greater than yours. Now, I don't think that really helps Pilate a lot, but not real comforting when you think about it. But there's a interesting play that's going on here. Now, some people have taken this verse and said, it's contributed to the hatred of Jews in the world all the way up through Nazi Germany, and it's happening again, anti-Semitism in the United States. They said, well, you know, it's the Jews who crucified Jesus. That's not true. It's not even the Romans that crucified Jesus. A.W. Tozer said it best to me. He said, who caused Jesus' death? Who crucified Jesus? He said, I did. And so did you. And so did we all. It's because of our own sin that God had to come and take our place and die on our behalf. So Pilate heard part of what Jesus said, but he didn't quite get all of it. But it convicted him, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, Caesar's in trouble. We already talked about in the Senate. But there's more to this than meets the eye. Because he was governor, he had on his right hand a signet ring. And the signet ring is Amicus Caesarius. And friend of Caesar is what it said. 
They picked up on that, and that's what they're saying. You're not Caesar's friend. Well, every member of the Senate had that ring. There it is. And we know if you're in law or attorney or something, an amicus is someone who comes in as a friend of the court and, and leads a deposition, who, who leads some proof. Well, this is another problem for Pilate because the friend of Caesar is him. Only now they're saying, you're no friend of Caesar if you're letting another king come in. Pilate therefore heard that saying. He brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat where he makes a decision in a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, those of you, I see many of you here who have been to Israel with us. You saw that. That's the floor. That's the stone, some of the stones that are in the proctorium. And that is a game, something like chess, that they played with two dice and they moved around. And it's called the king. And so that's what the prisoners, well, all the prisoners was in front of the court. That's what the soldiers, the guards were doing to amuse themselves. So you can see today it's about 10 foot below the pavement outside in Jerusalem because the city's been you know, destroyed so many times. It's just lower. But there it is. Walk in and look at it and know you're standing in the spot where the creator of the universe stood. Verse 14. Now it was preparation day, the day before the Passover, or the day of that leads up to the Passover, because the Passover starts when three stars appear in the sky. And about the sixth hour, this is Roman time, and the day begins at midnight. So this is 6 a.m. Jesus will be crucified at 9 a.m. Mark tells us it's the third hour, but that's because he's using Jewish time. And Jewish time starts from dawn, but this is Roman time. And so it's six in the morning. And then he uses that term, behold your king. Again, calling Jesus their king. It's caught in. And we'll see as we get to the end that Pilate believes this. He's been convinced now that Jesus is more than just a carpenter's son from Nazareth up in the north. But they cried out, verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest made a very political statement, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, well, you want Caesar now, but you're gonna be complaining about him very soon. In fact, so much so that Titus Vespasian, the general, would come down and destroy the city of Jerusalem within 40 years from what we're looking at right now. So it was convenient for them to say, we have no king but Caesar. It's not what they believed. Delivered him, Jesus, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate knew what was right. That was to release him. If a man could take scourging without crime, without confessing to a crime. He didn't have a crime is the way that Pilate's looking at this. And bearing his cross, he went out to the place called a skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. He bore his own instrument of death. Humiliating saying, but it fulfills the type. You see, it was on the same mountain 
that 2,000 years earlier, 2,000 years before this event, that Abraham took his son, his only son, Isaac, at God's statement, took him up to the top of the very same mountain, and there he tied him. And as they went up the hill, his son Isaac was carrying wood. And so Jesus is fulfilling that picture. Isaac goes up carrying wood, lays it out, and then lays on top of it because he's the victim. He's the sacrifice. I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him, God said. It was a test. He didn't really want him to be killed. So he tied him, laid him on the wood after he carried his own wood up. And then God said, as he raised his hand with a knife to sacrifice his only son, God broke in and said, no, look over there, there's a lamb. God had supplied a lamb for a man, for Isaac. In the very same place, God has supplied a man for the world, for the nation. The sin offering, Leviticus 9 said, it would be the flesh was to be burned with fire outside the camp. Jesus is outside the walls of Jerusalem because that's a fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 9. So it's called Golgotha in Hebrew. This is what it looks like today, bus station right below it. But that's what it looked like in 1901. In the middle of that red circle, you see the eyes, you see the nose, the mouth. No wonder they called it the skull. And there it is. Or in Latin, Calvary, that we know it. So where, verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on one side and Jesus in the center. This gruesome form of capital punishment. Jesus has been nailed we know, to the, this wooden cross. This is a, in 1979, this grave was found in the city of Jerusalem as they were building a new off-ramp. And that's an archaeologist who's using a brush uh, to see. And when they got to the ankle bone, that's what they found. This was a 20-something-year-old man who had been crucified with a nail, and it's not what anyone suspected. The nail went through the side of his heel. Now, please don't get upset. Somebody was upset at me the other day when I taught this, and they said, no, no, Jesus was nailed to the cross in the front. Maybe he was, one nail through both feet. I'm just pointing out, here's a first century Jewish male, 20 years old, who we have his entire skeleton, and the nail went through, see the end bent over? So evidently when they went into the cross, it hit a knot or some hard spot and it bent it so they couldn't get the nail back out. And they had to bury him with the nail still in his foot. And you can't see it real clearly, but on the right hand side, there's a piece of wood still there, like a, a wooden washer that they put the nail through, then through the foot, the heel bone, and then into the wooden cross. Why is that important? Well, because for years, experts said they didn't crucify until the 4th century. The Romans didn't know it. They learned it, learned it from the Persians in the 4th century, 300 years later. Whoops. <laughs> Within your lifetime and mine, 
we found a crucified 20-year-old man in Jerusalem. That's Pastor Ed Ray, and he's leading us through John's Gospel here on Grow in Grace. We return now to chapter 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title, and he put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, Pilate is actually doing something slightly different. The Romans put the charges against a person normally on the top of the cross. And so we have a cross that goes up, and then this cross beam across, and then this title that comes up, of it, which is where we get our picture of a cross. And somebody stopped me just last Sunday and said, how come you don't have any crosses here? There's no image of a cross. I said, well, if you read that carefully, Paul said, it's the message of the cross, not the image. The message of the cross is that God died for my sins. And I'm not anti-cross. I just grew up in a church that had way too many idols around. And I guess it's my personal problem with it. Hope that doesn't offend you. But Pilate wrote, on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's, and so that really ticks off the high priest because he doesn't like that idea. So 20, the, many of the Jews read the title for it was a place where Jesus was crucified near the city on the main road coming out of the Damascus gate that went north up to Syria. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew for the religious language of the time and Greek, which was the Luna Franca. It was the commerce language, kind of like English is today. And then Latin, which would be the Roman uh, way of conversing within a few years. It's really just getting started in the early part of the first century. It would be the second century before it was universal. But Pilate wanted everybody to know, no matter what's your background, if you were literate, if you were able to read, no matter what language you spoke, you'd be able to understand it. And this is on the main route out of town. So they go back, the Jewish leadership, then the high priests of the Jews. Now, remind you, when John says Jews, he's not talking about genetic Jews. He's talking about the leadership of the Jewish faith. John himself was Jewish, so there's not a racial slur or anything. He's saying the chief priests of the Jews, the, leader, the Sanhedrin, the 70, their Supreme Court, go to Pilate and say, do not write the king of the Jews, but said, I am king of the Jews. They wanted to change it around so the, the claim was just what he said. It's not important. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. He refused. Another way of saying get lost, I don't know, in the first century. Pilate seems to be disgusted with himself and with them. So Pilate had found no guilt because Jesus had no guilt. His only guilt was my sin and yours. And that would seem to be the end of the story for Pilate. How sad. It's not the end of the story. In, uh, in 320, Eusebius, an early church historian, wrote that Pilate was changed and that he was affected by this deeply. Quote, Pilate is seen in a very different way in my day, this is Eusebius, he died in 339. Augustine hailed Pilate as a convert. Eventually, he named Pilate and his wife as saints. And when Pilate first shows up in the Christian art in the mid-4th century, he is positioned with Abraham, Daniel, and other great believers. 
So he knew that, Pilate knew that this man was, in fact, not guilty. But Pilate would, within 12 months of this, be called back to Rome. He's in trouble. And in Rome, he's stripped of his position, and he's sent off to Gaul. Now, Gaul was really most of Europe. It started from Western France all the way to the Russian border. And they put him in a house in Switzerland, about the middle of what was Gaul in those days. And Raylan and I lived just down the lake from this for three years in Switzerland. And that's called Montes Pilatus, the Mon, the Mount of Pilate. Because he lived with his wife at the foot of that. And both the Greek Orthodox Church and the Coptic Church say that he's a saint and they have a saint's day for him, which of course we don't totally agree with, but it's June 25th. They're, they're absolutely convinced. It's a tourist site today. You can take a tram up to the top of that mound. It's the city of Lucerne is right next to a beautiful spot. Stunning. So don't feel too sorry for Pilate after he was, you know, banished to Switzerland. Oh my goodness, that's too bad. Lived on a lake, Lake Lucerne, and, and the church said that he was a different man. Now, I suspect, as usual, there's two groups of people here, two different groups of believers, those who all the story is familiar to you, believe every word of it. And then some of you, like Pilate, who aren't sure. All the way through this trial, he's trying to figure out, who is this man? What am I going to do with Jesus? And to those of you that may still be struggling with that, let me just speak for a moment because I actually like to speak to people who are struggling with that because that was my struggle for several years. I didn't become a Christian until I was 26. I was a scientist. I was a complete atheist. But I began to study men who are much smarter than you or I. I don't mean to insult you. I'm just saying that's reality. Sir Isaac Newton, his IQ estimated is 200. I dare say none of us are even close to that. But Pascal, Blas Pascal, he was a protege at two years old. He could read and write at two years old in two different languages. By the time he was 16, he had invented the first calculating machine. You can go to the Louvre in Paris and see it to this day. He was brilliant to the point of, oh my goodness. Well, when you were in sixth grade, you studied Pascal's triangle. And he worked that out when he was 17. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, he did work with pressure. And so the standard unit for pressure in the world today is a Pascal, named after him. And if that wasn't enough, on and on this goes. You, the, one of the more complex computer languages used at the universities and in science today is the Pascal language. So why do I give you all that information? Because at about 30 years old, he had an encounter with God. He, he started thinking about the, the strange things. His dad died. And thinking about what he called two different magnitudes. Quote, he suddenly saw life vividly two sizes. The shortness of time and the vastness of eternity. This, this truth came rushing at him at home one night. And he began to seek truth 
1654, after midnight, because he would write this, he had an encounter with God. He said, fire, flames, lightning, God spoke. The Spirit spoke to my life. And it became radically converted. I say that just to entice you, just because you may be very intelligent and you think that only people who need religion are those that need a crutch in life. There's some very brilliant people that have come to a different conclusion. One of them was a past president. We're going to close with this. So former President Ronald Reagan in 2004 wrote this right before his death. He had been studying John, this chapter 19, and he wrote this, meaning no disrespect to the religious convictions of others, I still can't help wondering how it can explain away what to me is the greatest miracle of all and which is well recorded in history. No one denies that there was such a man that he lived and that he was put to death by crucifixion. Where is the miracle I speak of? Well, consider this and let your imaginations translate the story into our own time. Possibly to your own hometown, a young man whose father is a carpenter grows up working in his father's shop. One day, he puts down his tools and walks out of his father's shop. He starts preaching on street corners and in the nearby countryside, walking from place to place, preaching all the while, even though he is not an ordained minister. He does this for three years. Then he is arrested, tried, and convicted. There's no court to appeal, so he is executed at age 33, along with two common thieves. Those in charge of his execution roll dice to see who gets his clothing, the only possession that he had. His family cannot afford a burial place for him, so he's interned in a borrowed tomb. End of story? No. This uneducated, propertyless young man who left no written word has for 2,000 years had a greater effect on this world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, all the conquerors, generals, and admirals, all the scholars, scientists, and philosophers who have ever lived. All of them put together. How do you explain that? Unless he really was who he said he was. Now, maybe you're sitting there saying, well, you know, Pastor, you don't know how bad I am. I'm guilty of so many things in my life. Somebody told me I needed to listen to a sermon by a pastor, a Scottish pastor, uh, Alistair Begg, and, and I did this week. And at the end of it, he said, you know, what about your sin? What about mine? Imagine with me that the thief on the cross that Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise too. He said, imagine him coming to the pearly gates. And there's an angel there and the angel stops him. And the angel said, by what doctrine are you here? What theology do you have that I should let you in? And the man was dumbfounded. He shook his head. He said, I, I, well, why are you here? He said, well, the guy on the middle cross told me I could come. The man on the middle cross was Jesus, and he extends that same invitation to each and every one of us today. Thanks for joining us for Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We're going through the Gospel of John together from start to finish. For a CD copy of today's message, 
Just call 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or you can listen online at thepackinghouse.org. You'll find an archive of past radio programs there too, which comes in handy should you miss a message on the radio. Go to thepackinghouse.org and look for our radio page. You know, it takes a team to bring Grow and Grace to you, and we look to our listeners to help make all of this possible. We have an exciting resource to tell you about. It's True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. After serving the Lord as a pastor for many years, Francis began to wonder if Christianity really made a difference in people's lives. True spirituality, you could say, is the result of his effort to re-examine his faith. And if you want to discover what true spirituality looks like in everyday life, this is the book for you. We'll send you a copy when you support Grow in Grace today with a gift of any amount. And as you give, you'll be helping many others around the country and around the world to grow in grace as well. Just give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. This program is presented by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Let this world know me by your love.